you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. You have noticed, of course, that we have on the communion table this morning the elements of the Lord's Supper, and we will be celebrating communion today. If we were living in the 16th century, the early part of the 16th century, at the time before the Reformation, this celebration would have been quite different. For in the 16th century, the church believed a doctrine known as transubstantiation. Now this doctrine first appeared in the 9th century, advocated by a man by the name of Radbertus, who thought there was not enough mysticism, not enough mystery in the church. <laughs> if you've studied the church of the Middle Ages, obviously the man didn't have a clue as to what was going on. It's like saying we don't have enough entertainment in the church of the 21st century. So, he postulated a theory, a doctrine, that when the words of the Mass were said over the elements of the communion, the wine and the bread, he said that a miracle took place. Uh, and it, it's all wrapped up in the philosophy of, philosophy of Aristotle, who said that everything has substance and accidents. The substance is what something actually is. The accidents is what it looks like. Now this looks like a glass of water. This is a glass of water. Okay. But he said that transubstantiation meant that the wine and the bread still looked like wine and bread. But it literally became the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you do understand what the word literally means, because we use that word all the time without any clue. You know, I, I hear all the time people say things like, I saw a guy, he was literally flying. No, he wasn't. He wasn't literally flying. You know, literally means literally. He said the wine and the bread literally become the body and the blood of of Jesus Christ. Now that was in opposition to the Augustinian tradition that had prevailed since the 5th century that said it was spiritual. That it was a spiritual representation and that it was extremely important and something we should all take very seriously. But the wine represented the blood and the bread represented the body. Uh, this doctrine was declared the faith of the church in 1059, and then it, it was official, or became official, with the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Of course, it opposed one of the most important ecumenical councils in the history of the church. In 451 A.D., the Council of Chalcedon, Chalcedon declared that the deity and the humanity of Christ exists without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So you see why transubstantiation is not possibly biblical or rational. Body and blood belong to the humanity of Jesus Christ. Omnipresence belongs to the deity of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. So the man Jesus couldn't possibly be here 
where we are celebrating the Lord's Supper and in California in a church this morning where they're separating, celebrating the Lord's Supper. It, it confused the humanity and the deity of Christ. It is no accident that October the 31st is both Halloween and that it is remembered for the start of the Reformation. Both of them key off of November the 1st, which is All Saints Day, or Hallows, All Hallows Day. Hallows comes from the Old English for saints, or holy ones. And on All Hallows Eve, October the 31st, 1517, the Roman Catholic Church received the world's most memorable trick-or-treater, though it was barely noticed at the time. A lowly priest in Wittenberg, a man by the name of Martin Luther, who had no intention of starting a reformation. He was concerned about some practices in the church that he thought were unbiblical. Luther had been carefully studying the book of Romans and had come to be converted. And he realized that the church was in serious error at a number of points. And so Luther wrote up what he called 95 theses, or disputations. He wanted to talk about it. He simply wanted to discuss some things that were going on. He thought a lively discussion would be good for everybody. And so he nailed those 95 theses that he had written out to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. But the kindling had been laid for some number of years. Things had been going on in the church that precipitated not just a discussion, but a reformation, a revival. And it sparked this thing we call the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the thing that, if, if you read the 95 Theses, I don't know if any of you ever read them, read them or not. Uh, I remember the first time I read them for a church history class in college thinking, what? Is, this, is that all there is? I mean, they're, they're, they're not really all that controversial, but not to us anyway. But even at the time, Luther was just saying, let's talk about this. And the main thing that bothered Luther was the indulgence system that was going on at the time in Germany. Uh, a man by the name of Archbishop Albert, who was already in control of two provinces in the Roman church, decided that he wanted to be the bishop of man's as well in 1514. Now, Albert was very, very wealthy, but he was only 23 years old. And canon law, church law, did not permit him to hold more than one office. But Pope Leo X was trying to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the one that's still there. And he needed a lot of money. And fortunately for Pope Leo, uh, Archbishop Albert was very wealthy. And so the Pope 
issued a papal bull that Albert could sell indulgences uh, in order to finance his buying the bishopric of Mance and for Leo to build the St. Peter's Basilica. And so he arranged for a loan to be made with the Fugger uh, banking family in Osborne. And Albert hired a man by the name of John Tetzel to sell indulgences. Tetzel was paid $1,100 a month plus expenses. This was in the 16th century, people. I mean, the average wage of Americans in 1950, to give you an idea, was $3,300 a year. And Tetzel was making $13,500 plus expenses. This was a lucrative business. Now, indulgences were associated with the sacrament of penance. After one had repented of sin and confessed it, one was assured of absolution by the priest, provided that satisfaction was made. And the church taught in that day that the guilt of sin and eternal punishment were forgiven by God, but there was a temporal satisfaction that the repentant sinner must fulfill, either in this life or in purgatory. Purgatory is still a Roman Catholic doctrine. It says, you know, after you're saved, you're still going to sin a lot. And so you have to purge yourself of that sin. The Roman church confuses justification and sanctification. They say for a person to be justified, he actually has to be made righteous. Righteousness has to inherit in him. Of course, the Bible teaches that justification is a declaration of righteousness based upon the work of Jesus Christ. But anyway, purgatory was a place of great suffering, but not of the final suffering. But let's say that uh, your loved one, let's say that my, you know, my great-grandfather uh, was a horse thief, and he died with that sin in his life, I could buy an indulgence which would get him out of purgatory. What a wonderful thing. And if you were very, very wealthy, you could even buy an indulgence that would just, you know, clean up all your sins from now to the time you die, and when you die, you go straight to heaven. You know. <laughs> if purgatory were biblical, if purgatory were biblical, and I had to pay for the sins since the time I was converted till the time I die, which I don't know how I'd do that anyway. But if I had to spend time in purgatory to pay for them, I'd be there 10 million years. I don't think I'd ever get out. How would I satisfy the holiness of God? But that was the system that was there. And Luther rightly thought that it was wrong, not biblical. Now, the Roman church believed in, in, in what was called a treasury of merit. They believed that Christ had lived such a good life. <laughs> okay, we got that right. Uh, that And the other saints had lived such good lives that there was a treasury of merit laid up that these indulgences could draw upon. So, 
this glaring abuse of the church with absolutely no justification for it in the scriptures at all became the cause, really, of the Reformation. Now, that's all an oversimplification, of course. There's all kinds of other factors that were at work, politics, economies, intellectual things. But for the purpose of what we're studying today, the theology is the main thing. So this morning, I want us to look at five core doctrines that form the basis of the Reformation the essentials of the Reformation. Now, if uh, some of you gentlemen were in our Bible studies that we were doing before the pandemic hit, you will recognize and remember these because we studied them uh, in great depth in, in those uh, Bible studies. Uh, we don't have time for a, a lot of depth here this morning. It's, it's going to be quick. But these are referred to as the solas. Sola is a Latin word meaning only or alone. So note first, sola scriptura, our only foundation. This means scripture alone. Many critics of the Reformation have attempted to portray it uh, as a, an attempt at individualism, saying that people can discover for themselves from the Bible without the benefit of teachers, without the benefit of commentaries, or without the benefit of those who have come before us. They will say, what you're saying with that is, never mind the church, never mind creeds or confessions, uh, we have the Bible and that's enough. But that's not what the doctrine means. Matter of fact, Martin Luther said of individualistic approaches to the Bible that that would mean that each man could go to hell in his own way. Uh, Rome said the ultimate authority of church rested in the bishop at Rome, the Pope. The Reformation said the Bible is the ultimate authority of the church and that, that bishops and popes, cardinals, creeds and confessions must come under the authority of of Holy Scripture. That Holy Scripture is the final authority for determining, determining doctrine and life. And in interpreting it, the whole church must be included. The laity, the clergy, teachers in the church. These teachers, though they are not infallible, have considerable interpretive authority. Uh, and further, sola scriptura means that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is not only authoritative, it is sufficient. Although Rome believed that the Bible was infallible, the official theology was shaped more by the insights of Plato and Aristotle than by Scripture. One of, the, one of the mottos that came out of the Reformation was semper reformanda, which means always reforming. The reformers said the church is always in need of reformation. Why? Because the church is made up of fallen men and women. And we have the tendency to get off track. And today, 
In the evangelical church, I think things are very, very similar to what they were in the 16th century. The Bible is claimed by almost all evangelicals to be authoritative, but their actions make it abundantly clear it is not sufficient. To the Bible, we need to add smoke machines, laser shows, light shows, and a dancing band, dancing bears, and clowns, and juggling, and swallowing swords, and flamethrowers, all sorts of worldly entertainment. Did you know that one time the Southern Baptist Convention, listen to this, at one time, not too long ago, the Southern Baptist Convention taught classes at Ridgecrest on, get this, gospel clowning. Well, that's appropriate, I think. Clowns. I mean, and I knew a pastor in Knoxville 40 years ago who went into his pulpit, white face, red nose, full, he was appropriate. He was a clown. So, but what? Did you read? Do you remember what we said when we read this, what Paul said? What did he say? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. In the last ten years, I've sat in some of your homes and talked to you about coming to North Athens Baptist Church. And all of you can testify that I have told you we don't have a dog and pony show. We don't have any laser lights. We don't have any smoke machines. What we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's all we got. And it is sufficient. Ours is a visual our image-based society, much like the Middle Ages. And yet Christianity can only flourish through words, ideas, beliefs, announcements, arguments. There can be no communication with God apart from the written and living Word. Everything in the Christian faith depends on the spoken and written word delivered by God to us through the prophets and the apostles. I think you know this. I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't already know. But when the day comes that we got to put on a clown show at North Athens, I am gone. I said, well, you're older and dirt. You're going to be gone for long anyway. That's true. I'll admit that's true. But it may be sooner than later if you want a clown show. I'm not doing it. Secondly, Sola Christus, our only mediator, Christ alone. In the Middle Ages, the minister was seen, the priest was seen as having a special relationship with God. And he mediated God's grace and forgiveness through the sacraments. We often think of our own age as unique. But actually... The problems that are in the church today have been there for all of the 2,000 years of the history of the church. For instance, in the Middle Ages, many Renaissance minds were convinced 
that there was a saving revelation of God in nature and that Christ was not the only way to be right with God. If, if you just, you know, observed God in nature. A fascination with pagan philosophy encouraged the idea that natural religion offered salvation even to those who did not know Christ. The Reformation, as much as anything else, was an assault on faith in humanity and a defense of the idea that God alone reveals himself in the pages of Holy Scripture and saves us. The Reformation said we don't find God, God finds us. The emphasis was Christ alone, that Jesus Christ is the only way of knowing what God is really like, the only way of entering into a relationship with God as Father instead of judge, and that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from his wrath. And again, today that affirmation is in trouble. A recent poll that was done by a University of Virginia sociologist said that 35% of the men in evangelical seminaries today do not believe in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. These are men who are going to be occupying pulpits. And they do not believe that Christ and Christ alone is the way of salvation. I told you a couple of weeks ago, a recent poll of young people in America, 70% of them denied the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. 70%. Those were ones who claimed to be Christians. Now, to speak of the doctrine of sola Christus doesn't mean that we deny the Father or the Spirit. But we do affirm that Christ is the only incarnate self-revelation of God. He is the only Redeemer of humanity. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to Himself, but to Christ. If you go to a church or if you hear a sermon where the emphasis is drawing all of the attention to the Spirit, get out. The Spirit does not do that. The Spirit of God draws attention to God the Son, who is the Redeemer. A few years ago, I got into an argument with a young lady about whether or not we could call God her and mother. I said, no, you can't do that. What? That's your tradition. No, that's how God revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. He revealed himself as him and Father. That's how God did it. Argue with God. Don't, you know, don't argue with me. Argue with God. Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. I know how young people feel. I know you don't believe this, but I was young once myself. I was. At one time I argued with my father, a man who only had a fifth grade education. I'd come back from a year and a half in a Muslim country, and I said, Dad, these Muslims, I mean, they're devout. They are devout. They, they pray five times a day. And you're going to sit there and tell me that they're not going to heaven? 
my dad looked at me and said, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by Him. My dad had a fifth grade education. He's one of the most profound theologians I ever sat under. Christ is the only way of salvation. Sola gratia, our only method. Grace alone. The reason we must stay with the scriptures is because it is the only place where we are told that we are saved by the unprovoked, undeserved acceptance of God. God accepts us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God justifies what? The good people. The nice people. No, He justifies the ungodly. I listen uh, a lot to uh, a channel on Sirius XM uh, from the 60s. song from the 60s. Because... You know, some of y'all are old enough to have told me about that time. Anyway, the music's good. So, but there's a song that is played frequently on there. It's a song called Last Kiss. And here are the lyrics. Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven. So I got to be good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. That's the religion of the world. If I'm good, I will go to heaven. Deep down, human nature is convinced there is a way for us to save ourselves. If we're just good, if we just follow the golden rule, if we're just kind to people, if we don't rob any banks, if we don't kill anybody, oh, we, we've looked at the law of God and we know we don't quite measure up and today we didn't quite do everything we were supposed to, but we're convinced tomorrow we will. We will do better. We know and our conscience condemns us that we are sinners. But we just think we can make it. And then the gospel comes to us as an announcement that is foolishness. Foolishness. The gospel says that salvation is outside of you. Salvation comes by Jesus Christ and Him alone. And you believe that He died for your sins and was buried and rose the third day. And when that happens, God saves you, declares you to be righteous, imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account. You're still sinful. But you're justified. You're declared righteous before a holy God. Most everyone in the medieval church believed that God's saved by grace, but they also believed that their will and their cooperation was their part in salvation. A popular medieval phrase was this, God will not deny His grace to those who do what they can. The popular version of that today is God helps those who help themselves. By the way, in a recent poll that was done, 70% of people who attended church regularly thought that saying was in the Bible. God helps them that helps themselves. God help them. 
Salvation is by grace alone. By grace alone. On the eve of the Reformation, a number of church leaders, including bishops and archbishops, had been complaining of a creeping Pelagianism, a heresy that denies original sin and the absolute need for grace. But even in the Middle Ages, that heresy was never fully tolerated in its full expression. However, today, it is not only tolerated, it is promoted in many liberal churches and in what are supposed to be conservative evangelical churches. In Pelagianism, Adam's sin is not imputed to us, nor is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Adam is a bad example, not the representative in whom we all stand guilty. Someone called me this week. It was kind of strange. They called me this week because I posted a couple of things. And they had heard of a fellow who pastors the Elevation Church over in Charlotte, North Carolina, a man by the name of Stephen Furtick. It's one of the largest churches in America. They run like 30,000 people on Sunday mornings in their churches. And they had tuned in to, I guess, his latest sermon. I don't know. But he started out by saying, this was the opening line of his sermon, Adam's sin affected no one but Adam. That's pure Pelagianism. Pure and simple. There's a word for that kind of teaching, heresy. Stephen Furtick is a heretic. I saw later that day, ironically, Later that day, I saw that Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, had put him on her top 100 how did, how, spiritual influencers, I think. He, he was considered a soul influencer. Let me tell you something. If you claim to be a preacher of Jesus Christ and Oprah has got you on her top 100, you are in serious trouble with God. That's about the last list that I would want to make on this earth would be Oprah's top 100. Today, Christ is a good example. But he's not the representative in whom we stand righteous. How many sermons in churches this morning will center on following Christ, as important as that is, but not on the person and work of Christ? How often do we hear about the work of Christ in us compared to the work of Christ for us? The gospel is what he has done for us. Oh, you're not listening fast enough. You've got to hurry up here. The next one is sola fide, our only means, faith alone. The reformers said it's not enough to say that we've been saved by grace alone. For even medieval scholars held that view. Rome viewed grace more as a substance than an attitude of favor on God's part. In other words, grace was like water poured into the soul. It assisted the believer in his growth toward salvation. The purpose of grace was to transform a sinner into a saint, a bad person into a good person, a rebel into an obedient person. The reformers 
searched the scriptures and they found a key ingredient missing in the medieval doctrine of grace. To be sure, there are passages that spoke of grace transforming us and of transforming us into the image of Christ. But they looked at a word group in the New Testament translated righteous or righteousness, the diakosuni word group. And they said it doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to, to declare righteous. Ironically, Erasmus and other humanists who translated the Bible accurately from the Greek cleared up a lot of that mess because it was in the translation where the weaknesses were. The, the sacrament of penance came from the Latin Vulgate which said, do penance rather than repent. And so it is said that Erasmus and other humanists laid the egg that Luther hatched by making the translation better. We've looked at this. We don't have to go over it again. Justification means to declare righteous. We are, we are justified and at the same time sinful. But we are declared righteous by God. You have to understand that the Roman church taught and still teaches that the instrumental cause of justification is baptism. The Bible says the instrumental cause of justification is faith. Faith doesn't save us, but it's the instrumental cause in salvation. For Rome, justification is accomplished through the sacraments. When you are baptized, you are justified. You are made righteous. You receive justifying grace. But then you, you commit mortal sin. And mortal sin, as opposed to venal sin, kills justification. So then you must enter the system of penance, what Rome calls the second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. Then you enter into a system of penance. Again, Rome said that God doesn't justify anyone unless righteousness actually inheres within the person. They said God does not declare a person righteous unless he or she is righteous. So in the Roman church, justification depends on your sanctification. Yeah, you need grace. Yeah, God does his part, but you've got to do your part. If you don't, yeah, too bad. By contrast, the reformers said what the Bible teaches, that righteousness is imputed to us based upon the work of Jesus Christ. He accomplished that perfect work, and God imputes his righteousness to us. And then finally, sola dio gloria, our only ambition. This simply means to God alone belongs the glory. Our greatest ambition in life should be to glorify God. Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Look at the two systems of salvation. Which one brings more glory to God? To say that it is God alone who does it? through grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, are to say that we participate 
that God pours grace into us and then we do our part and we get to heaven. That is the problem I have with Arminian theology. It robs God of part of the glory. It says that I do my part, God does his part, and then I'm saved. Of course, there is a sense that's true. I did my part. I did the sinning. God does the saving. That's it. That's, that's the two sides of it. What is the ambition of the evangelical movement? To please God or to please men? Would you rather make Oprah's list of soul influencers or be despised by the world as a bigot, as narrow-minded, as intolerant, because you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. There were radically different views of salvation in stake at the Reformation. They could not be reconciled. One was right, one was wrong. There are radically different views of salvation at play today in the evangelical church. One is right, one is wrong. You must decide which one is right, which one is wrong. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There are thousands of men in this world who can preach the gospel better than I can. But they can't preach a better gospel. There's only one gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for this word. Now sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen.